The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks, Feel Alive and Thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And um, today we're talking about, um, well, this is the first of four shows that I'm doing for May, which is Lyme Awareness Month. And as um, all my listeners know, this is part of my personal story. And although Lyme disease is a growing epidemic in Canada and North America and even worldwide, it continues to be ignored by the medical system. Vanessa Farnsworth, author of Rain on a Distant Roof, A Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada, is joining us today to share her story. So, Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So um, what got you into writing a book about Lyme disease? Well, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease back in 2007. And at the time that I was diagnosed, I found that I could not get any good information on the disease. Um, I tried getting that information from doctors, and they seemed to not know very much about Lyme disease. They seemed to have conflicting opinions and confusing advice to give on it. I tried getting information from public health authorities, and yet that information I was getting from them didn't seem to match the disease I was suffering. And, of course, I tried to get information out on the Internet, and a lot of stuff I found on the Internet was confusing. It was angry. It was very scary. And so I decided that with the difficulties that I was having finding information on Lyme disease that I probably wasn't the only one. Probably everybody who gets Lyme disease because it is an emerging disease uh, has the same problem getting any good information about it. So that was the main reason for writing the book. Um, But there was another reason too, and I found that there was a great uh, misconception about what Lyme disease was out in the general public. There seemed to be this idea that it was a fairly mild disease, it was mostly a rash and maybe some arthritis, and people really didn't know about it beyond that. So part of the book, what I do is I take you inside the life of a Lyme disease patient, in this case me, to show you what Lyme disease is like to live with on a day-to-day basis, because I felt that was important information for the public to have. You know, I I agree that it is important. You know, I shared my story online, and I get a lot of people that it, it you know, I was told yesterday somebody got relief from hearing my story because they were treated by their doctors not very well, but they were similar to what I was, and they knew whether it was Lyme or not that I would understand what they were going through because somehow they were falling through the cracks of our, our medical system, and they needed help desperately. 
Oh, that's very common. Like, since I published the book, I've heard from Canadians, literally hundreds of Canadians, um, and from every province, and they all tell the same story, that they have a heck of a time finding doctors who know anything about it, finding doctors who can accurately diagnose them, uh, getting accurate testing. I mean, and it's not just with, the problem is not within the doctor's office alone, it's society in general. Often their families don't understand what's wrong with them. Often I hear stories of people losing their marriages, their their jobs, uh, their friends, uh, because there is this this lack of understanding of what Lyme disease is and just how disabling it can be. So how did your Lyme story start? Well, it started with a bang, actually. Um, one day I was perfectly healthy, and I went to the dentist, and he shot adrenaline into my gums, and that was pretty much the end of my life for about a decade. Um, all of a sudden, while sitting in the dentist chair, I had these horrible tremors, and not nor- the normal kind of tremors that you would expect from somebody who just had an adrenaline shot. They were very violent tremors. And from there, I went downhill very rapidly over the next couple of months. Um, I had a whole bunch of rashes. I had fevers that would come and go very much like malarial fevers. I would develop cognitive dysfunction. I would have problems with my memory um, and, and what's generally known as brain fog, so I could not have clear thoughts. And the symptoms just kept growing and growing and growing over the, the course of the next few months to the point where I was having cardiac issues, my heart wasn't beating properly, and I was having these sudden drops of blood pressure, and I found that my legs and my arms didn't seem to work properly. And it just seemed like there was a, a snowballing uh, series of problems over the next six months, and I kept going back into doctor's office saying something really horrible is happening to me. And doctors kept running tests, and they kept saying, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and then as time progressed, and about six months after those initial symptoms, um, I would end up collapsing and having to be taken to the emergency room. And at that point, they realized they had a very sick person on their hands. And so what did they do then? How did they find the Lyme? How was that diagnosed? Yeah, so that, I was in the hospital for, oh, I think it was a week or 10 days. I was in the hospital for quite some time, very seriously ill. I had multiple organs that were in distress, and I had significant neurological issues. And over that time, doctors were playing guess the disease because they really had no idea what this illness was. And there was one group of doctors who were thinking that it was an infectious disease of some sort. They were kind of thinking maybe malaria, um, or they thought maybe I had septicemia. And there was another group of doctors who were thinking, no, this has to be autoimmune. This looks very much like an acute attack of MS, or it could be lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And so these doctors kept coming into my room every single day, giving me these wide variety of diseases it could possibly be. But even in the state I was in, which was a very terrible state at that time, um, it was very clear to me that they had no idea what was going on. Um, And so it just so happened that as that week progressed, they kept sort of narrowing in on this really seems like an acute attack of MS. And because of that, one of these doctors remembered that Lyme disease um, could mimic the symptoms of MS. And since they really didn't know whether they were dealing with an autoimmune illness or an infectious disease, they just decided to run that test to rule it out so that they could go down that MS path a little bit more calmly so that they would have a good idea that that's what it was. And to everyone's surprise, uh, that test did actually come back positive. So it's one of the very few positive tests that have ever been seen in Canada. And so at that point, they knew that they were dealing with Lyme disease. 
um, after, you know, six months of lack of knowledge, you know, we suddenly had this, this solid diagnosis. So before we go into what happened after that, I think we should, um, there's probably some people listening with their ears pricking up when you're talking about, you know, what they were suspecting this was. The symptoms were like MS and they were like autoimmunity and they were like, you know, what, what exactly is Lyme disease? Well, Lyme disease is a multi-system inflammatory disease, and it's caused by the bite of an infected tick, and that tick will be infected with, at the very least, a species of Borrelia. Borrelia bacteria is what causes Lyme disease. Uh, often, these ticks are also infected with other organisms at the same time, so when you're bitten by a tick, not only do you get to pick up Lyme disease, quite often you'll pick up at least one other tick-borne illness, sometimes more than that. So in my case, not only did I have Lyme disease. I also had relapsing tick fever. Um, that one is a co-infection of Lyme that you very rarely ever hear about. And the reason you very rarely hear about it is it's extremely rare in Canada. I think when I was diagnosed back in 2007, there were only between four and five cases in all of Canada. So although it is a co-infection, it's a, a one you don't hear about. You tend to hear about things like Babesia or Bartonella or Lichia or something like that, far more common. So because Lyme disease itself is a multi-system inflammatory disease because you get these other co-infections in there and complicating the picture. And of course, there's autoimmunity. So there is an autoimmune reaction that many people get uh, when they come in contact with Borrelia bacteria. And so you have this extremely complicated disease picture, which can throw up just any number of symptoms. I think at one point I looked at a list of about 75 symptoms that are associated with Lyme disease, and I think I must have had about 75 out of 75 on that list. It is a very complicated disease picture. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. When I was at my worst, I had over 120 symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and uh, I think it's important also to state that Lyme sometimes only has, you know, one or two or, you know, very few symptoms. Oh, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be that severe, which is part of the the mystery of this disease that it doesn't look the same with each person. No, it looks very different with each person to get it. So some people actually contract Lyme disease and their immune system takes care of it without them ever having a single symptom. Other people get a very mild version of disease where maybe they get a rash and, uh, you know, a short course of antibiotics takes care of it. So when we're looking at my case of Lyme disease, which is a stage three neurological Lyme, we're looking at basically one of the worst of the worst. So this is an extreme example of what Lyme disease can do to you. Most people don't get to the extreme, but there are certain symptoms that just about everybody with Lyme disease has, uh, including cognitive dysfunction. Um, that is an extremely common one, but the aches and the pains and the fatigue, those are extremely common symptoms of Lyme disease. Okay. So after you were diagnosed um, with the relapsing tick fever and the Lyme, what happened? Well, then I was treated, um, and the treatment for Lyme disease and relapsing tick fever is the same treatment. It is antibiotics. Um, it's a longer course with Lyme disease, so I was treated for five days for relapsing tick fever, and then when the Lyme test came back positive, I was treated with another 21 days of antibiotics for Lyme disease, and the conventional thinking at that time was even though it was a severe case of Lyme disease, even though it was neurological, that this uh, 26 days of antibiotics altogether would more than clear it up and that at the end of that I would be cured. Um, and my experience of it was very, very different than that. 
Um, and I can go into that if you'd like to, to hear about what uh, happened at that point. Yeah, so what so happened when the antibiotics were done? So what happened with the antibiotics <laughs> is that um, Lyme disease and relapsing tick fever are amongst those rare diseases that when you start to treat them, they actually get worse instead of getting better. So there's something that can be developed. It's, it's known as a Jarish herxheimer reaction. You often hear it just called a Herx reaction. Um, and what I was told when I was treated with antibiotics that if a Herx reaction was going to show up, and it doesn't show up in every case, some people get away without an amplification of symptoms, but if it was going to show up, it would show up within the first 24 to 48 hours, um, and it would, it would amplify my symptoms a bit, and then I would start to get better. My experience on antibiotics was very different than that. Um, what my doctors didn't know, and this is one of the problems, is you're often dealing with doctors who are not all that familiar with Lyme disease. So what my doctors did not know was that in advanced cases of Lyme disease, that Herx reaction, that amplification of symptoms, often doesn't occur until several weeks down the road. So when I was on the antibiotic treatment, my Herx reaction did not kick in until about the second going into the third week of antibiotics. And suddenly things went just from bad to horrifying. I mean, it was a sudden amplification of symptoms, but it was more symptoms and it was worse symptoms. And I was suddenly suffering from things like paralysis and seizures. And this thing was going to be a monster. And at that point, I was told I had had my treatment. You know, if three weeks of antibiotics, that 21 days of antibiotics specifically for the Lyme disease had not been effective, then it wasn't going to be effective. So at that point, I was introduced to the controversy over Lyme disease because up until then, it hadn't been a controversial illness to me. It had been a difficult-to-diagnose illness, and it took doctors a lot of effort to figure out what it was. But once they had figured out the diagnosis, once they had treated it, that whole process was pretty much a standard process for uh, diagnosing and treating any illness. Um, but it was at this point when suddenly these doctors started behaving like I had done something horribly wrong by not getting well and, in fact, getting worse. And I suddenly became a pariah. And I could not understand why doctors were suddenly, who had been nice to me, you know, a few weeks prior to that, were suddenly not wanting to talk to me, not wanting to have anything to do with me. And that's when I suddenly had to learn very quickly about the controversy over Lyme disease. Well, in, in your book, you, you talk about one doctor telling you that you just wanted attention and that yeah. all this was in your head. Yeah. And this, I, I think, is a, you know, I hear is a very common story with Lyme. And, uh, you know, I was told the same thing. And I was, I was told good luck, you know, when yeah. I was having this movement disorder, seizure-like symptoms. And the doctor was like, oh, you're fine. You know, good luck with that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's this very serious disease with very serious symptoms. And, um, you know, you're kind of treated like you're, you know, just something, you know, a fly on, on the wall and just brush it off, you know. So right, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, so... We are going to take a break. We're talking today with Vanessa Farnsworth. She's the author of Rain on a Distance Roof, A Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada. This is our first show of four in May that's going to focus on Lyme disease since it is Lyme Awareness Month. Um, if you have any questions about today's show, you can email us at anantacalgary at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear your comments. We'll be back shortly.
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're speaking with Vanessa Farnsworth. She's the author of Rain on a Distance Roof, A Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada. Lyme sufferers everywhere can relate to the the dismissal of doctors, the ignorance of this disease, and being told uh, that the debilitating symptoms that they're experiencing are all in their head. We're discussing that today. So Vanessa, I mean, we talked before the break about what, what was happening. Um, you know, doctors weren't taking you very seriously. And uh, so, so what happened when you stopped antibiotics and you weren't getting help? Yeah, so then I was on my own because um, I had tried to get help within the system and the system wasn't working out. There was one doctor who was willing to try to help me, but he had run afoul of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in this province in British Columbia uh, for trying to help patients just like me. And so it was very clear he wasn't going to be in practice much longer. So that was not an avenue going forward for me. Um, and I was given a couple of terrible choices. One terrible choice was I could go to the United States and get treatment there. Of course, that's expensive, and I didn't have the finances to do that. And the other was to go out into the unknown, which is to try to find alternative practitioners of some stripe uh, in order to help me. So 
Um, I did a lot of research in that area. I looked at Ayurvedic medicine. I looked at traditional Chinese medicine, herbal medicine. I looked at self-treating. And in the end, I ended up going back to a naturopath that I had used um, in Ontario uh, back when I was a relatively healthy person. And I that was one of the, I think, the rare good decisions I was making during this time because with brain fog, it's very difficult to think clearly. And my rationale for going back to him was, first of all, because of the region of Ontario he practices in. Um, he had seen Lyme disease before, and he had seen some pretty bad cases of Lyme disease before. But also because he had known me before I had gotten ill, and he was the only um, doctor, somebody with a... a medical training who had known me when I was healthy and he knew what I was trying to get back to. The rest of the doctors, the ones that I was dealing with here in British Columbia, they'd only ever seen me as a sick person. Uh, So they didn't know what I was trying to get back to, what my level of functioning was before I was sick. So I went back to a naturopath that I had used previously and he was up to the task, I've got to say, um, that he would walk into that situation when somebody is so sick, when they're having seizures and paralysis and completely non-functional that he would be willing to walk into that situation and say, we're going to do our best and see what we can do here. Um, That was an enormous relief to me because I had really run out of options. Um, So in in your book, you talk about how our healthcare system is our birthright in Canada to free healthcare. So how did you feel that you had to go outside the system? Yeah, I couldn't get any help within the system. Um, I had an experience that I think is very familiar to Lyme disease patients in that when I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, uh, the specialist that I had been referred to, um, he was quite adamant that there was no Lyme disease in our region, there was no Lyme disease in Canada, um, and therefore that could not be the disease that was affecting me. And so I never actually that did get to see that uh, specialist, and so it was a long delay in getting to see a specialist. The problem is, if you go into a doctor's office and you say, I have Lyme disease, the reaction is generally a negative reaction, and so you're in there trying to get symptom relief. You're trying to find anything that will relieve symptoms. It doesn't necessarily have to be antibiotics, and you're dealing with somebody who thinks it's all in your head um, or, or, or something to that effect. Um, who don't, doesn't understand. Unfortunately, Lyme disease patients have a tendency to look well even when they're not. And so it wasn't a natural choice to me because, like I said, this is a, a healthcare system where we have universal health care. It is our birthright as Canadians to have health care. And so my mindset at that point was the only person who could, do- who could help me was a medical doctor. And so I just kept going back and I just kept getting repelled. And so leaving the health care system was something that I found to be extremely stressful to do at a time when I was very sick and not making good decisions in general. Um, you know, you talk about people being pushed through the cracks, falling through the cracks. Well, I was being pushed through the cracks. I didn't want to go. But it, the problem was at that point um, I was bedridden and I remained bedridden for about six months. I was getting worse, not better, and I had to do something um, because from my perspective I was going to die if I didn't do anything. So I had to do something. And so that was, that was my break with the healthcare system. And for better or worse, I think it's changed my view of the healthcare system um, indelibly. 
Um, you know, I, I think I share that view because I, you know, having a similar experience, I had to, I mean, luckily I'd already gone through school after I um, found out I had Lyme and I was able to do some research and treat myself, but not everybody has that option. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to me, the fact that you've got people that are so desperately ill and they have no options and not everybody has the funds to go elsewhere and um, they you know, assume that we have this healthcare system that's going to help them. And I think people do see it as a betrayal that it's not working for them. Yeah, it's not just a betrayal, too. It's also dangerous. Um, some of the things people have told me that they have done to treat their Lyme disease, and of course I go through the book, one of the things I tried to do to treat my Lyme disease, people really are being put into dangerous situation as a direct result of the failure of the healthcare system to address this issue. Um, most people would not leave the healthcare system when they're that sick. Most people do want a medical doctor to help them out. And so the fact that so many people with Lyme disease um, have left the system is saying something very negative about the way our system has gone. So why do you think that there is, um, that doctors aren't wanting to look at Lyme? Well, that's really for them to answer, but there does seems to be this idea that with Lyme disease, you're talking about the disease du jour and that it is a disease people are reading about uh, in newspapers and coming into doctor's office. And so they sort of think it's some sort of whim or fancy that people are thinking that they have Lyme disease when they probably don't. And so there's this negative idea that people are looking to blame just anything from fatigue and, and, any, and the normal aches and pains of life on a disease. I think that's part of it. Part of it is the information that doctors are getting from public health officials uh, tends to emphasize um, the treatability of it and the first stage symptoms of it. It tends to go very little into the advanced stages of the disease. So it's something that doctors don't know very well. And when it comes to differential diagnosis, they often were not taught very much about Lyme disease in medical school. So when they're considering what's wrong with you, uh, Lyme disease often doesn't come into their thought process. And if you insert it as a patient, say, I, you know, this could be Lyme, there tends to be this idea, well, you just read that somewhere, you saw that on the internet. And so there tends to be this, this dismissal of it. There's also a problem that doctors who have treated Lyme uh, beyond that 21 days that's called for the guidelines. I think the guidelines calls for two to four weeks. Doctors who have treated beyond that have gotten themselves into some trouble. I mentioned the doctor who tried to help me who got in trouble with, with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. That, unfortunately, is not an isolated case. It's happened a few times that medical doctors who have tried to use their best judgment um, in treating Lyme, which is something we want doctors to do, to look at each case individually and say, I think this patient needs more treatment than they got. Um, There have been cases where doctors have gotten into a lot of trouble. And so if you're a doctor and you know that that has happened, um, and I think most provinces, well, several provinces I can think of have had doctors who have gotten into trouble. If you see a colleague getting in trouble for treating a, a patient for a disease, you're going to be quite reluctant to treat that patient as well. Um, you know, I think that's very fair, especially if, you know, the fight isn't theirs or they don't understand what's going on. Um, you know, we have to take into consideration. I think the, the change seems to need to come from higher up so that they can follow, you know, guidelines that, that match what should happen for the disease. Yeah, the guidelines that we have right now are not very good. Basically, they focus in on 
they do mention three stages. They do tell you what to do um, to treat it, but they don't tell you what to do. They don't give doctors very clear guidance on what to do if they've got a patient whose symptoms outlast the treatment. They talk about um, an autoimmune syndrome. They tend not to talk about chronic Lyme. There is a reluctance to believe that the bacteria itself can can survive an onslaught of antibiotics for two to four weeks. Uh, so they talk in terms of an autoimmune syndrome, but they don't give doctors very good guidance on how to treat these patients with this autoimmune system. So you've got a doctor in front of you who doesn't know very much about the illness, may never have had another patient um, with that illness. Remember when I was diagnosed back in 2007, I was the first person uh, in my town ever to have had a confirmed case of Lyme disease. So this is not a disease they knew. So all they knew were the guidelines. And the guidelines don't give them guidance beyond slapping some antibiotics on you. That, that's it. You know, you get two to four weeks of antibiotics. They're not given clear guidance what to do with you after that. And when they see doctors who try to help patients after that two to four weeks of antibiotics getting into trouble, then they really don't want to be in hot water with them. So what happens uh, to many Lyme disease patients is what happens to me is you sort of get bounced from doctor to doctor, each one saying, well, the other guy will do it, the other guy will do it. And so you get bounced around the system and nobody ever does anything. Um, which I think is unfortunate because you've got some of the sickest people um, in the world not being treated or even recognize that they're ill in our system. Yeah, and in my case, we're talking about a confirmed case of Lyme disease. So this is an ironclad case, so I'm one of the official statistics. So if that's happening to me, if we know that I have Lyme disease and it cannot be anything else and that's happening to me, you know, when I hear stories from people with that, that terrible chronic Lyme designation who don't have the positive test here in Canada, who have not been diagnosed by an infectious disease specialist, just coming from my point of view, what's happening to me, it must be far worse for them because there is some credibility to my claim, which doctors tend not to see in a lot of other Lyme disease patients. It makes them very easy to dismiss them. It's harder for them to dismiss me, but they do it anyways. Yeah. Um, so I guess when we're looking at, you know, we keep talking about, you know, getting diagnosed and the testing. Um, how does somebody go about get testing for Lyme? Yeah, testing for Lyme. Um, people ask me that a lot. And mostly what I have to say about that is it's probably not worth getting tested for Lyme disease. Um, there are accuracy issues with the tests that we have here in Canada. There are tick-borne, uh, there are laboratories in the United States that specialize in tick-borne testing. The problem with those labs is that there is not a single health authority anywhere in Canada that endorses those tests. So you can actually go to one of those facilities. Actually, you don't have to go. You can have the blood drawn in Canada and sent down to one of those labs in the United States. Um, there are a couple of popular ones that treat for that test for tick-borne illnesses. The problem is that you could very well end up with a positive test, walk into your doctor's office thinking that it means something to them, but because no public health authority in Canada actually accepts those tests, your doctor doesn't have to do anything with that test and nothing bad will happen to them if they ignore it. Um, the tests that we have here in Canada, um, they're a bit tricky. Testing in general with Lyme disease is very tricky, um, and it's a huge topic, but one of the things with it is the human body, our immune system, is very slow to produce antibodies to Lyme disease. And so the problem that you've got is that the current testing system that we use here in Canada, which is what's endorsed by the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, um, it does not work uh, very well if you try to run a test on somebody with Lyme disease in the first few weeks after 
they have been bitten because even if they have a raging case of Lyme disease, even if they have a bullseye rash, that test will invariably, almost invariably come back negative. So at the point in the illness when Lyme disease is the most treatable, the tests are useless. So for somebody like me who is in stage 3, it's neurological, which is a rare condition in Canada, so that stage 3 severe neurological infection, the infection that's hardest to treat and may not be curable, I come up positive on the test because my body has had enough time to develop those antibodies, but by this time the infection is infesting every single one of my organs, it's breached the blood-brain barrier to go into my brain, I test positive, but there's not really a whole lot anybody can do about it at that point. So testing it is something that is not horribly useful in Lyme and you can put yourself behind the eight ball if you go into a doctor's office and you say you want to be tested for Lyme uh, because there is this tendency for Lyme tests to come back negative um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Partly it's the antibodies and partly it's the species of Borrelia and the strains of Borrelia burgdorferi that we have in Canada. More often than not, these tests come back negative even if you have Lyme disease, and that's a bit problematic because if you have a test done here in Canada, if it comes back negative, um, chances are you're going to be told that you don't have Lyme disease, that Lyme is suddenly going to be coming off the list of possible causes of your illness, and you may have had it, um, and that is something that a lot of people have found the hard way is that testing has failed them either because they get a negative in Canada and therefore Lyme is being ruled out when it should not be. It is a clinical diagnosis. Or they've got a positive test from the United States from a lab down there, which is not accepted here in Canada. And so it becomes very tricky. I, you know, when people ask me about testing, I usually say, you know what? It is a clinical diagnosis. What we need here is for doctors to learn about Lyme disease and be able to consider it as part of their differential diagnosis and then tell us, tell patients based on their symptoms and based on their histories whether they have Lyme disease instead of relying on tests. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point um, just because we, as of yet, don't have that good testing in Canada. It uh, isn't very useful at all. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're going to take a quick break. Um, today we're talking to Vanessa Farnsworth, who is the author of Rain on a Distance Roof, A Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada. This is one of four of our Lyme-centric episodes for May, which is Lyme Awareness Month. So you can join us uh, each week to hear more about Lyme disease. If you have any questions about today's show, you can message us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at annettacalgary at gmail.com. And we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin, breast cancer survivors and advocates. They help by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk 
with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skincare Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're speaking with Vanessa Farnsworth. She is author of Rain on a Distant Roof, A Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada. This is one of our four episodes in May, which is focusing on Lyme since it is Lyme Awareness Month. So, Vanessa, um, in your book, you talk about reported cases of Lyme, and they're actually, in Canada, there's not very many reported cases. Can you just give us some thoughts on that? Yeah, surveillance criteria for reporting Lyme disease is extremely strict. So most people who do legitimately have Lyme disease do not fit the surveillance criteria and therefore are not included in the official statistics, which means that the official statistics, the official number of people who have Lyme disease in Canada is artificially low. So I think back in 2015, which is the last year that we have numbers for, um, they were saying that just over 700 people in Canada had Lyme disease. Well, I think I personally know 700 people in Canada who have Lyme disease, and I don't know everybody who has it. So those numbers are extremely low, and part of that's a problem with reporting and the surveillance criteria um, that we're using, um, which is very, very narrowly focused. Um, and part of it is just the problem with reporting in general. All reportable diseases, diseases that are tracked by public health authorities are underreported. And Lyme disease tends to be a little bit more underreported than other ones. So if you look at, in general, uh, reporting on diseases, the true number of people who have whatever disease you're reporting on is probably somewhere in 10 to 20 times the number stated. Um, and Lyme disease seems to be out by a little bit more than that. So if you're looking at 700 people officially having Lyme disease in Canada last year, then really what you should be understanding is that's more like between 7,000 and 14,000 people in Canada had Lyme disease, and the number is probably slightly higher than that. Now, we don't know for certain how far it's out. Some attempts have been made, I know here in British Columbia, to try to quantify that. 
Um, and, and certainly um, there's evidence to believe that that 10 to 20% range is at least what it's out by. So we're looking at, you know, 7,000 to 14,000 new cases um, last year, and those numbers are going up quite rapidly, the, the number of people becoming infected, because, of course, as climate change um, is affecting us and as ticks are moving up into Canada from the United States, there's three breeding pockets in the United States, one in northeastern United States, one in the Midwest, and one down in the California area. Those ticks are being carried north, and they're being carried north in huge numbers and very far north. I mean, the ticks capable of spreading Lyme disease have been found all the way up in the Yukon. Um, and we're looking at, by 2020, estimates are that 80% of Canadians are going to be living in these Lyme uh, endemic areas, which means areas where we've got breeding populations of infected ticks. So that's just four years from now. Um, those projections were made back in 2011, and it looks like they were either on target or a little bit conservative. So it's moving very fast. So you've got, and to make matters worse, is that we now have breeding populations in Canada. So not only do we have ticks being brought into from the United States, but we have our own breeding populations. And so saturation rates in areas that have had Lyme disease, Lyme affected ticks for a long time, like southern Ontario and southern Quebec and out east, they're seeing their saturation rates going up, and that's going to go up rapidly, which means 80% or more of Canadians at this point really are living in areas where they can contract Lyme disease. And unfortunately, I don't know that that's very well understood. You know, I went on tour, I think, back in 2014. I was standing in the middle of Hamilton telling them, you know, your chances of getting it in Hamilton, you know, are much, much higher than they were a decade ago. And in fact... This idea that we have that you have to go out in nature to contract Lyme disease, well, that's proven not to be the case. Uh, most people who contract Lyme disease actually contract it in their own backyards or in their own neighborhoods. So you could be standing in the middle of downtown Toronto, downtown Hamilton, and you can very easily contract Lyme disease in those areas. And as time goes on, that's going to get worse. And the, pro- the provinces that um, have had the least amount of Lyme disease, those would be the prairie provinces, we're seeing... Uh, already we're seeing dramatic increases. Uh, Manitoba in the last few years has had to redraw its map several times because the rate at which uh, ticks are going up into Manitoba and breeding in that area is it's just going farther and farther north, farther and farther west, and saturation rates are going up. And I hear from a lot of people in Alberta. Ten years ago, I didn't hear from anybody in Alberta. Um, but now, uh, fairly regularly, I'm hearing from people in Alberta, uh, Alberta who are, um, have Lyme disease. And even Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, which has, I, I, I think they just had their first official case of Lyme disease two years ago, but I'm now starting to hear from a lot of people out of Saskatchewan as well. So that center of Canada, though, which was relatively safe from Lyme disease, that's changing rapidly. Um, you know, I, I would I agree with that because I, I was bitten by ticks when I was five and when I was 16, and both of those were in Saskatchewan. And mm-hmm. uh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, and I think when we, when you know, they weren't looking for it, we didn't know. And, it, well, you know, could it... and we've seen that in Ontario, too. Um, the first breeding population was in Long, found in Long Point, and that was in the early 90s. But I've heard from an extraordinary number of people in Ontario, southern Ontario, and even in southern Manitoba who believe that they were infected by ticks back in the 80s. And so, you know, the problem is we have very little active surveillance uh, in Canada. So we don't really know 
where the ticks are. We know certain areas where the ticks are, where researchers have actually gone and they've actually studied and they've actually found it in nature, but there's vast swaths of Canada which have never been studied. So we don't really know where they are. We kind of have to guess. And the best guess is you live in anywhere in southern uh, Canada at this point. You're living in an area where it is reasonable to contract Lyme disease. You know, and that's pretty scary when, um, you know, you and I are saying you need to look out for this and then, you know, somebody who doesn't know us gets bitten by a tick and they may go to their doctor and and then um, experience what we did where, oh, no, it's okay. Um, so what do you recommend for people to, when they're in that situation where they think that they've been bitten, what do you think people should do? Well, one of the challenging things about Lyme disease um is that we often focus in on a tick bite, and I don't remember a tick bite. And you'll find that the majority of people with advanced Lyme disease cannot remember a tick bite. So focusing in on a tick bite is a bit tricky because um, you could have symptoms and have no recollection of being bitten by a tick. The only way I know that I was bitten by a tick is because I have two tick-borne illnesses. If that had not been the case, I would have had no idea that ever happened. But generally speaking, uh, when people are concerned, first of all, if you develop a rash of any kind, the rashes in Lyme are extremely rare, but if you develop any kind of circular rash that spreads out, take a picture of it. It is extremely difficult to sit there in a doctor's office and to try to explain to them that you have a rash that's spreading out and they can only see a stationary rash and they don't quite believe you. Um, so take a picture if that ever happens. If you are bitten by a tick, you can't actually have the tick tested. However, um, only certain tests, uh, only certain ticks are tested by most laboratories. And even if they do come back for positive for Lyme disease, that's going to be way too late for you. So basically, if you know you've been bitten by a tick, if you are concerned about Lyme disease, and you should be concerned if you're bitten by a tick and you develop any kind of symptoms, don't worry about what the symptoms of Lyme disease are. If you develop any kind of symptoms in the weeks or months after that, go to a doctor and tell them that you've been bitten by a tick because that really should clue them in. Otherwise, the problem that you have is that most people who have Lyme disease, especially the advanced stages, have no recollection of a tick bite. And so that makes it extremely tricky for you and extremely tricky for your doctor to try to figure out what's wrong with you. Um, Because although a lot of patients come to the conclusion that they have Lyme disease long before their doctors do, Doctors are still looking for evidence of a tick bite, and they're still looking for evidence of a rash that may or may not be there, and that puts you in a very tricky position as a patient. Well, and I, I think um, when we're talking about the advanced stages as well, when people, the doctors were looking at you having these autoimmune diseases or these infectious diseases, do you find that that's a common story as well, where people are looking into MS or ALS or some sort of neurological or autoimmune illness? Yeah, of the of the misdiagnoses that we see in Canada, MS is certainly way up on that list, as is chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Those are probably the most common misdiagnoses for Lyme disease. And in fact, when we're talking about chronic Lyme disease, these chronic cases of Lyme disease, uh, certainly public health officials in British Columbia have been very vocal about saying that they believe that what people believe is chronic Lyme is actually chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so it's very easy to get misdiagnosed with something like that. But we have to keep in mind as well that we don't actually know what causes chronic fatigue syndrome, just as we don't know what causes many of the troubling symptoms of chronic Lyme disease. 
So both of those illness could actually be caused by the same thing. We just don't know at this point in history what that same thing is. Uh, I talked a little bit earlier about being able to pick up any number of organisms when you're being uh, bitten by a tick. One of the problems that we have is we don't know a whole lot about what lives in the guts of ticks, and we do not know how many of those organisms that are there cause illness in human beings. So when somebody like me gets bitten by a tick, we know that we've identified uh, Lyme disease bacteria, we've identified relapsing tick fever bacteria, Um, but what we don't know is that if something got missed, if there's a novel pathogen, meaning something that science doesn't even know about yet in there, and there is suspicion that that may be the case for a lot of people with chronic symptoms of Lyme disease, Um, and even, for that matter, chronic symptoms of um, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, something like that, is that maybe they have contracted something else that has not yet been identified. Um, And that is just where we are at history right now. We're talking about an emerging disease, which means we don't know very much about it at all. So what is causing chronic Lyme symptoms may not actually be Borrelia burgdorferi, one of the Borrelia strains of bacteria. It may be something viral. Uh, It could be just about anything. And until we identify it, we're not going to know the answer to that question. Well, and I think that's important that you bring up that this is an emerging disease and we don't know everything about it. So, um, you know, a lot of people get frustrated with the gray area and the testing and the gray area and, and even the knowledge, um, you know, especially when we, we, we feel more comfortable when things are black and white, you know, yeah. we know when we yeah. know what's going on. And when you're dealing with, when you're so sick, you don't want a gray area. You know, you want this. This is what you need to do to get better, and that's it, right? Yeah, I found that really hard to live with, the the idea that I was never going to find the answers I was looking for. And that was something that I very much struggled with because there are so many unknowns, and I feel like I only know a very tiny part of the picture of what happened to me. I lost close to a decade out of my life. Fortunately, recovered in the end, but I did lose a decade out of my life, and I don't really have... The full picture of what happened, and I suspect I only have a tiny picture of what happened. It just seems like there's something being missed. And when you're that sick for that long, you just want something that's going to cure you, something that's going to make those symptoms go away. But when you don't know what's actually causing the symptoms, and when nobody in the world knows what's causing the symptoms, um, you just end up in this gray area, and you have to learn how to live with uncertainty because... You know, in 10 years, I haven't hit the point of certainty yet, and I don't think it's going to come, probably not even in my lifetime. I mean, we are that far out from finding the answers on Lyme disease that probably not even in our lifetime we're going to have a good idea. So, I mean, that brings us to the point where we have this gray area. Um, Is there a cure for Lyme that we know of yet? Not really. Not a surefire cure. So I feel great now, but am I cured? I mean, I seem to be in remission at the very least. It's very questionable. Um, Even taking two to four weeks of antibiotics, if you think about how long that is, and that is not defeating the symptoms of Lyme disease, without knowing what's causing these chronic symptoms of Lyme disease, it's really hard to say how we're going to cure it. Uh, We certainly don't have a good way of dealing with it. If you're spending several months, several years in treatment, I think we can say that's not an efficient treatment for Lyme disease. 
And so the question is, what's that treatment going to be? Is it going to be antibiotic treatment or is it going to be something else? Well, first we have to figure out what causes the symptoms. Once we figure out what causes those symptoms, then we can figure out how to either treat them and cure the disease entirely or at least to come up with effective therapies because as it is right now, the answer, uh, can you cure Lyme, is one that does well. There is no answer to that right now. Um, if you are diagnosed early, if you are treated within the first couple of weeks of contracting Lyme disease, then antibiotic treatment is close to 100% effective. However, great many of us, I would say most of us, are not diagnosed or treated till later. And then there's a huge question about whether it can actually be cured. And there's just no answer for that right now. Well, and, and you know, a, a topic for another show is the complications of treating the disease where we have the biofilm and all the other forms where yeah. it can protect itself. So, you know, there's the knowledge of having the disease and then there's the complication of, you know, when it can hide itself so well and we don't even understand all of that. Um, we're not we're not going to see, you know, those um, what we want until we understand all of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do you deal with biofilms? How do you break down those biofilms so you can get to the bacteria in order to kill it? And, of course, you have the problem. One of the things I talk about in the book is that when you get this bacteria in the biofilms, there can be other organisms in the biofilms as well, and they can swap genetic information back and forth. So you've got these things that are mutating inside the biofilm, and how do you defeat that? So first you have to figure out how to break through the biofilm, and then you have the cystic forms of, of Lyme, which are impenetrable to any antibiotics that we've got. We've got a bacteria that can change states from having a cell wall to not having a cell wall, which is very important when we're talking about antibiotic treatment, is how do you, how do you kill something that can go from having a cell wall to not having a cell wall? And it just seems to be superlative in uh, its ability to switch forms and to defend itself from anything and everything we throw back at it. And you don't want to look too closely into that area of research because it gets very scary and you begin to wonder if this thing is just better than anything we can throw at it. Well, um, this seems like a pretty ominous way to end a show, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the main thing I want to point out is if anybody feels that they, um, have Lyme or they already know they have Lyme is to find, um, somebody who has experienced treating Lyme. Um, you know, you may fail with your family doctor and if they don't have that experience, they might not get where you need to be. So, and Vanessa, I want to thank you for, for joining us on the show. This was really informative. And I think a great way to start, you know, our Lyme Awareness Month. Well, it's great being here. Um, and now, is there any way people can contact you if they have questions? Do you have an email address or website? I have a website, LymeDiseaseBook.com, and anybody who uses the form on that website, I always reply. So if anybody has any questions, anything they didn't feel that I didn't quite cover here, or any questions about anything I had to say or about my experience, they certainly can contact me through that form. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this is our first of four um, episodes in May that are focusing on Lyme disease. So uh, please tune in for the rest of the month to learn more about this um, illness. If you have any questions about today's show, you can message us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can send us an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com. And please make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.